All right, if you could uh, take your Bible and find John chapter 17. Today is Palm Sunday, where in the church calendar we remember the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, sort of to commence the, the final week of his, his uh, earthly life and ministry. And this is the, this is, so this is the first day um, of what Christians all over the world and Christians throughout the centuries have referred to as Holy Week. Uh, not because, in one sense, there is anything holier about these days or this week over against any other day uh, or week, but call it Holy Week because the, this is the week in which we remember the, the events which are the very foundation of our faith, of our eternal hope. Uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. And Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Right? So it is Holy Week in another sense. It is in the, holy in the sense that it's, it's right, it's appropriate, it's good that we would set these days apart from all the other days of the year sort of gives special remembrance and special focus to these foundational realities to our faith and our, like I said, our eternal hope. Also, keep an eye out this week, being Holy Week, um, on Lakeview, not just our college ministry, but the church as a whole, on the social media platforms for the church or on the website, um, different pastors on staff recorded uh, short devotional videos for each day of Holy Week leading up to Easter. And if you want to take advantage of that, look on, uh, look on there throughout this week. And then come back tonight at 6 because our choir and our orchestra, which hasn't been together in quite some time, is going to lead us in um, uh, an Easter music program. So it'll be great. I hope you'll be here. All right. So today being Palm Sunday, and like I said, we would normally think about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to commence the final week of his earthly life. But... We've already encountered John's account of that event way back in chapter 12. So all that to say, if you, if you want to remember that today, I'd encourage you to reread that. And you can go back on our podcast and re-listen to our thoughts on that. But to stay on track to finish our study through John before the end of the semester, we're going to proceed from where we left off last week on the events of what would have been Thursday of that final week of Jesus' life. Jesus, having washed his disciples' feet, having eaten the Passover meal with them, initiating what we now refer to as the Lord's Supper, and having given his disciples in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 some of his most important uh, instructions and admonitions, he now, in chapter 17, prays for them. He prays for them. And if you're looking in your Bible. It's listed this way in my Bible, right? The heading right above John 17 uh, labels this. What is that? It labels it Jesus' high priestly prayer. His high priestly prayer. That's what this prayer is commonly called. Why is it called his high priestly prayer? Because one of the major functions of high priests in the Old Testament was not only to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people 
sacrifices to God on, on behalf of the people for their sins, but was also, along with that sacrifice offered, also to pray and make intercession for his people, for the people of Israel. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, just a couple of examples. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 16 and earlier in Exodus, on the Day of Atonement, when the, when the priest would offer sacrifice, uh, a substitutionary sacrifice for the people, he would then take some of the blood of that sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies one day out of that whole year uh, and with some of the sacrificial blood there to pray and intercede for the people with the Lord. Um, we also see it like in Second Chronicles 30 uh, when the people observe the Passover they, they offer the sacrifices, and then at the end of the chapter, in verse 27, it says, Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their, uh, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. So they offered the sacrifice, and they blessed and they prayed for the people. So on Palm Sunday, we often focus on Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, and, and he sort of fulfilling the role, the Old Testament role of the Davidic king, right? There's going, to one, there's going to be another king coming in the line of David, and he's sort of fulfilling that role. You know, they, they lined the streets as he rode into town, and they, they laid their, their, their coats on the ground and, and the palm branches. And what were they crying out? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, comma, even the king of Israel, the king of Israel. So we often focus on Palm Sunday on this kingly role of Jesus, that he uh, rules righteously and he's coming to conquer his enemies in a way that was not expected but nevertheless true. But in John 17, we see that Jesus also came to fulfill the Old Testament uh, role of the priest. And as he here, you know, not only prepares to offer the once and for all sacrifice for sins, that would be the sacrifice of himself, but also to hear make intercession for the people he was about to die for. And Hebrews 7.25 reminds us that not only does he pray here, but he always lives, resurrected and ascended at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for his people. So this prayer we find in, in John 17 is, is sort of unlike, in, some, in, in at least one way, the other prayers we see. We see a lot of prayers from Jesus in the Gospels. This one's a little different. I don't want to draw too hard a line between this prayer and Jesus' other prayers, but in, in the sense that we've just been describing, in fulfilling this priestly function, we see it more clearly here than in other prayers. Jesus is very consciously praying and acting as our high priest here to offer sacrifice for our sins and then to intercede for us here and now in heaven. Um, I want us to read through this great prayer. So if you found John 17 in your Bible, I invite you to follow along with me as I read it aloud. We're going to read the whole prayer, which would be the chapter in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That would be Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in, the, in truth. I do not ask for these only, these disciples, those, those remaining 11, but for also those who will believe in me through their word, which includes us down to this day. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even even as you loved me. That's a, that's a stout sentence. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name and, will, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And, and immediately after Jesus prays this prayer in the, in the next few verses, he's going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be betrayed by Judas and arrested. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to your word today, the word we just read aloud, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the truth that Jesus teaches us in this, in this great high priestly prayer. Give us eyes to see it. Oh, Lord, would you give us not just eyes to see it, minds to understand what he says here. Give us hearts to embrace and love 
and care about what he says here? Might the the little glories and the temporal uh, joys of this world fade away and become uh, minor and the the joy in Christ here become major. Would you give us wills to obey what it is you call us to do here and, and, and be encouraged in the way that you would have us to be today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as we, as we think through this very important prayer, I think it has three distinct sort of movements in it, uh, three distinct phases. Or, uh, so in the early part of the prayer, the focus of the prayer is mainly about the Father and the Son, God the Father, God the Son, and, and the work that the Father gave the Son to accomplish for our salvation. That's the focus of the early part of the prayer. Then in verse 9, if you're looking at your Bible, verse 9, there's a pretty distinct transition in the prayer where Jesus now starts to pray for his disciples. At first, beginning in verse 9, praying for those 11 disciples that are remaining with him, minus, you know, Judas is now gone. But not just for them, like in verse 20, he, he also includes all those who would later believe, which includes us to this day. And then his focus on praying for his disciples does continue to the very end of the chapter. But at the very tail end of the prayer, uh, you see that the, the focus on, on his disciples also shifts again a little bit in verse 24. And uh, whereas earlier he was praying for his disciples and their lives in this world, their lives as his witnesses in this world. He, he also, at the end, prays for them in heaven for all eternity. So with that basic flow of mind, here's how I want to break up the prayer and think through it. First, in verses, if you're taking notes, here's where we're going. In verses 1 through 8, we're going to see Jesus praying about the accomplishment of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation for his people, verses 1 through 8. The accomplishment of salvation. Then in verses 9 through 23, the bulk of the chapter, we'll see Jesus praying about the application of salvation to his people. The application. So first, the accomplishment. Second, the application of salvation to his people. Then at the tail end, verses 24 to 26, I want us to see Jesus praying about the arrival of the saved the arrival of the saved in heaven with him. This is an incredibly rich, rich, and encouraging prayer. And, and before we dive into the specifics of it, I just want to point out one reason why it is so encouraging. I want to point it out to you at the front end so that as we make our way through it, it's like a rock in your shoe, and you just you have it in your mind. You can't shake it as we move through the prayer. And it is this. Back in chapter 11, John 11, hold your place here and just flip back to chapter 11, we saw another one of Jesus' prayers. And this, this is a prayer that Jesus prayed right before he raised Lazarus from the dead. And when you get to, when you get to uh, John 11, look at what he prays in verses 41 and 42. In John 11, 41 and 42, this is what Jesus prays. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Focus in on what he says right at the beginning of that brief prayer. Thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. When Jesus prays to the Father, he is always heard. Why is that, why is that significant? It's significant because of something that John, the apostle, says in, in another place a little bit later on. In, you can just jot down this reference. We've, I think we've mentioned this recently. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And in that passage, John the Apostle is talking about us and our praying. And here's what he says. Listen carefully. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if, he, if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have, we have the requests that we have asked of him. Did you follow that? John says, if we pray according to the will of God, he hears us, and if he hears us, we have what we've, what we've asked of him. If, he hear, if we, according to his will, he hears, if he hears, we have. Put two and two together. Jesus prayed in John 11, Thank you that you have heard me. You always hear me. Therefore, when Jesus prays, he's always praying according to the will of God, and hence, everything for which Jesus prays, he receives. He's always heard, he always has when he prays. So, Come back to John 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Everything for which Jesus prays is a request that will certainly be granted. Not only to him when he prays for himself, but to us when he prays for us. He's praying according to the will of God. The Father hears him and will grant what he asks. This is an incredibly encouraging prospect when you consider what he prays for here. So, Let's dive in and take a closer look at what he prays for here, thinking first about the accomplishment of salvation in verses 1 through 8. All right, let's put on our thinking caps for verses 1 to 8. These are sort of the, uh, the if there is a hard section of the passage, it's these early verses. So verses 1 through 8, when he's, uh, he's, he's, talk, he's praying about the accomplishment of salvation, and looking at verses 1 through, within verses 1 through 8, track with me here. Within verses 1 through 8, there is also within that another self-contained portion. (laughs) We see it in particularly verses 1 through 5. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to maybe draw this out for yourself or something. Write it down. It'll be helpful to you. Let's look at 1 to 5 first. Um, Verses 1 through 5 has within it a somewhat common feature in the Bible that is called an inclusio. Inclusio, like the word include, but instead of D-E, it's S-I-O, inclusio, which is what? An inclusio 
is a word, a phrase, or an idea that kind of acts like bookends on a particular passage, right? It's framing on the beginning and the ending. It's framing a passage uh, to mark out the boundaries of a distinct passage in a larger one, okay? And it also identifies the main point of that little passage. So notice where we see that here. It doesn't begin, verses 1 through 5 does not begin and end with the same exact phrase, but it does begin and end with the, with the same idea, which is the mutual glory of the Father and the Son. The mutual glory of the Father and the Son. See that with me. So he prays in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Father and Son sharing the same glory, each bringing glory to the other. Okay? Now look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First of all, that is a clear indicator of the deity of Jesus Christ because Isaiah 48, 11, God says, I will not give my glory to another. So when Jesus said, I shared glory with you, how can both of those be true? Jesus is not another. He is the same God with the Father. So when he shares glory with the Father, he is the same God. But second of all, in verse 5, you see how those in different words, it's still about the mutual glory between the Father and the Son. That is an idea that is bookending verses 1 to 5. And from those outside points, 1 to 5, that's the begin, that's the, those are the end zones of this passage. From those uh, outside points, he does something else. Track with me here. John does something else. He uses another literary device called a chiasm. A chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm. And, and, and what, what does that do? From within those outside boundaries, it works its way into a midpoint. And then that midpoint is the center of the whole thing. Here, let me just, let me, so here's, if you're drawing it out, here's what it does. Verses one, to, verses 1 and 5 match, then verses 2 and 4 match, and then verse 3 sits right there in the middle. Are you following me? Okay. 1 and 5 match, 2 and 4 match, verse 3 sitting right in the middle. So, we already saw verses 1 and 5 talk about the mutual glory of the Father and the Son, and specifically the fact that the, the Son has glorified the Father. That's the, that's the starting point. Then you work your way inward to verses 2 and 4, and, and it, it, they, those two verses describe how he has done that. Verse 2 says the, that the Son has glorified the Father because he has exercised his authority according to the will of God, and he's given eternal life to his people. That's how he has glorified the Father. Likewise, verse 4 says that the Son has glorified the Father by accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do, especially his saving work. Then you come to the center, the very center of that chiasm, verse 3, and you see what that salvation is, to know God through Jesus Christ, trusting in him. And doing that, Doing that, trusting, knowing God through Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ, 
receiving the eternal life that the Father gave him to give, doing that accomplishes the original goal of verses 1 and 5. That is bringing glory to the Father through the Son. By the Son revealing him and his salvation to us, and we glorify the Father through the Son when we turn from our sins and trust in his name. That's what's going on in verses 1 to 5. Jesus is praying, I've glorified you. I've glorified you in the work that you've given me to do, and that work is to give eternal life to those who believe. Then in verses 6 through 8, Jesus prays, saying that he he has made the Father and his salvation known to his disciples, and they have believed. Jesus knows that he is about to go to the cross and secure the grounds for the forgiveness of their sins. He hasn't gone to the cross yet, and nevertheless, even though he has not yet gone to the cross, look how certain, nevertheless, Jesus prays about the salvation of his disciples. He talks in verses 7 and 8 about how they have believed his word. In verses 7 and 8, it's about their belief But not before he grounds that in verse 6, in the eternal saving purpose of God. Look at that carefully. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to who? The people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And, hence, they have kept your word. It was the eternal purpose of God before the foundation of the world to save them, to save them. How else do you understand Jesus saying of these particular men, yours they were. Yours they were. God's saving purpose cannot fail. Hence, they would most certainly believe and most certainly be saved. That's how he can pray, most certainly, even before he goes to the cross. Because also, according to the eternal purpose of God, Jesus most certainly would go to the cross, and he most certainly would rise from the dead on the third day. The eternal purpose of God, saving purpose of God, always unfailingly comes to pass. So er, this early part of Jesus' prayer focuses on the fulfilling of God's will in the accomplishment of salvation for his disciples and for all his people. But we're going to see as we keep moving through the prayer that Jesus wasn't just concerned with the accomplishment of their salvation as if Jesus does the accomplishing and it's up to them, it's up to all the people to do whatever they want to do with it as if there is a chance out there that Jesus could do this and it entirely fail. No. It's not as if Christ accomplished the saving work of uh, will of God not knowing how it would be received in the world. No, Scripture is clear, especially in the Gospel of John, that the saving work of God does not merely include the accomplishment of our salvation, in the, in the coming, in the living, in the dying, in the rising again, in the ascending to the right hand of the Father. That's the accomplishment of it. But it also includes the application of it to his people, to his disciples, and all his people, as Jesus put it in verse 6, to those who were the fathers and given to the Son. 
to be his people, or to put it in the language of John 10, the application of it to the sheep that belong to the good shepherd. Look with me. And so that's what he prays for next. Look with me beginning in verse 9 as we think about the application of salvation. This is the longest part of the prayer, so we'll, we'll try to move through it a, we, not as minutely as we looked at the first part. So first, notice how clearly he switches his focus to praying for his disciples. He says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, not, not for everybody in the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I hope you hear in that the strongest possible comfort for your salvation. How? That your, your faith, your love for Jesus, however imperfect it, it may be, like there is no other kind in this life. Everybody's faith and love for Christ is very imperfect. Okay? Your faith is as imperfect as it is, your faith in Christ, your love for Christ is the evidence in time and space of the love of God that was set on you before God ever said, let there be light. The day-to-day the -day struggles of faith, I feel good on a Sunday when I hear the Word of God and I wake up on Monday, I'm a rotten mess. The day-to-day -day struggles with faith, the sometimes doubts and anxieties and vicissitudes of our faith, they often unsettle us. They, 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 they sometimes cause us to fear. I promise you, we would seem, we would see, it would, they would seem so less fearful when we realize, one, we would have no struggles or anxieties in our souls were the Spirit and faith not present there. Follow me on that. Galatians 5 says, for the believer, the Spirit is opposed to the flesh, and the flesh is opposed to the Spirit. And these are at war with each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. So in every believer, there are two realities present, the Spirit and the flesh, and there is conflict there. Conflict that might manifest itself on a Tuesday as anxiety over something. Maybe even your own faith, maybe your own salvation or fear or whatever. That's the flesh warring against the Spirit in you. Someone in whom is no faith, someone in whom is not the Spirit of God, there would be no struggle. They just wouldn't care. It wouldn't bother them in the slightest. There's no Spirit in them going, this matters. But two, the, the faith in us is the fruit of the saving work of God for us and in us that stretches back to all eternity. If only we could train ourselves to see ourselves as Scripture describes us. How does it describe us? Well, just look at Jesus' prayer here. He prays to the Father for the application to us of every aspect of our salvation from beginning to end. He's already mentioned at the end of verse 9 that the application of our salvation is rooted, in verse 9, 
in God's eternal gracious choosing. Look at the language of verse 9. Those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's just what Jesus says. The eternal gracious choosing of God in eternity past. In verse 10, he clarifies this eternal that this eternal choosing of God is that his people would be united to Christ in time and space. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That's verse 10. In verse 11, he having prayed that we would be united to Christ by faith, he now prays in verse 11 that the Father would preserve us in the faith, that we would never fall away from him. Keep them in your name, he prays. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. How do you know that you won't at some time in your life before you die fall away from the faith, lose your salvation? How do you know that at some point you would not fall away from grace? Because Jesus always gets what he prays for. He always gets what he prays for. It is a certainty that believers will persevere to the very end. It is a certainty that God, because God is a certain that God will preserve believers to the very end. Philippians 1.6 is not just Jesus and John. Paul, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The perseverance of the saints is rooted in the preservation of God. Keep them in your name. Jesus prays the same in verse 12, and he mentions only Judas who didn't persevere because he never was a believer. He didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. He was prophesied to betray the Savior in the Old Testament. When we say the perseverance of the saints is rooted in the preservation of God, what does that preservation look like? Well, it, he's already mentioned it it, it, it. it looks like God upholding our faith so that we never turn away from him. But in verse 13, it looks like having the joy of the Lord in our hearts. They may have my joy fulfilled in them, even at unexpected times and difficult times in the world. You'll, the longer you live, you'll see that. The, de- the, the day that you think is a possibility that one day this might come to pass, I don't know what I'll do if this ever happens. If this happens, I don't know how I'll deal with it. I'm afraid of that day. You're looking at it in the future, and it's fearful because you're not there yet, and he hasn't given you the grace for that day. But when that day comes, believer, God's grace will meet you there in a way that you could not foresee. And it won't be as fearful as you thought it would be. It won't be as awful as you thought it would be. There would be joy of the Lord in your heart that you could not have foreseen would be there. Preservation. In verse 14, it's the encouragement of His Word. In verse 15, it's protection from Satan and his schemes and his fiery darts, as Satan calls it. In verse 16, it's the protection of us from the love of the world. Jesus is praying for all these things in the lives of of His people. And through all of this... Jesus prays for our sanctification in verse 17, which means that all those things that we just mentioned, 
we grow more and more like Christ in the process. And notice in verse 17 that it doesn't happen. Sanctification does not happen apart from the Word. Brother Al has preached about it recently, about how, how non-negotiably necessary Scripture is to our lives as Christians. Jesus in verses 18 and 19 prays, prays for us as we go out as his witnesses and that we will be upheld, verse 19, not just by Christ's example to us, for their sake I consecrate myself, not just his example, but we would also be upheld by his saving work for us. That's why he consecrated himself for us. All the while, in verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays that we would be unified with each other and bear witness to the world in that way as his followers. Think about all that Jesus just prayed for. Think about it. On the basis of God's gracious choice, unwavering, immovable, unfailing choice of his people to be saved, he on that basis prayed that we would in time and space be united to Christ by repentance and faith and that he would preserve us in that faith to the very end of our lives by upholding our faith, giving us joy, protecting us from the enemy, protecting us from the love of the world, giving us his word, that we would be sanctified and be upheld by his power and his grace as we go out in his name. Holy cow. If that doesn't make you feel safe and secure from all alarm, I don't know what in the world would. And as we come to the end of this prayer, Jesus, Jesus gives it a fitting end to the trajectory we've already seen. He, Jesus doesn't pray that the, the salvation that he was about to accomplish, he doesn't pray that it would only be applied to us right up to the door of heaven, but no further. No, in these last, in these last verses, he he prays us right through the door into heaven, into heaven itself for all eternity. So in these last verses, he prays about the, the arrival of the saved into his presence in heaven for all eternity. The last two verses of the chapter, verses 25 and 26, are um, more about the love and unity among believers. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, that is certainly a request that he prays would be fulfilled in us now and tomorrow and the next day. But I don't think that's a, a prayer of Jesus just for this life. Why? Because look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. 
to see my glory that you have given me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. Where's that? That's heaven. Mount of Transfiguration has already happened. Right? He's, he's already told them, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That, and I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. So when he is, when he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity and there to see my glory that you have given me. One day, he's, we will be where he is and see him as he is. And as John says in 1 John 3, 2, because of that, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And with that in mind, look again at verses 25 and 26. It's on, it's on that day for which Jesus prays in verses 25 and 26. That, that on that day, our love and our unity would be perfected for all eternity that we would know among ourselves, among us, the love and unity that the Father and Son experience in a way. And look at, look at this, I, I, goodness. Um, verse 24, it says, I, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am. So the purview is heaven, where we see his glory. And then, Take that and look at verse 26 again. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. In heaven, we will ever be learning for all eternity. Heaven won't be boring, because for all eternity, we will, we will be, we will know ever deeper and ever deeper and ever deeper and ever deeper the glory of Jesus. Every day, well, there's no more night there, so I don't know how to say that. But anyway, maybe every moment, a new revelation of his glory never gets old. What a beautiful prayer. This is, this is exactly what a high priest would do. This is exactly what a high priest would do. He would offer the sacrifice, and then he would pray for the people the blessings that were intended to come from that sacrifice. Those blessings would fall on the people. That's exactly what Jesus, our high priest, does here, except not just to get us by for another year until the next day of atonement comes around, but once for all, for all eternity. This is what, this is what Jesus, the Lord, was riding into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday triumphal entry. That's what he was riding into Jerusalem to accomplish. And he accomplished more than those who lined the streets that day ever imagined. And sadly, because we, we too often have our minds set on other things, we too don't realize all that the Lord has done for those who have trusted him. I encourage you to read this prayer through several more times and just and be encouraged that, 
that Jesus is your Savior, that he's a faithful high priest who always lives to make intercession for us, and therefore he is able to save us to the uttermost.